Our text today is from uh, the book of First Kings, First <clears throat> Kings eleven four through six, and then verse thirty four, and then I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter ten, from Hebrews chapter ten. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> listen, please, to the inspired word of God. First Kings eleven four through six. Read it silently as I read it aloud. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. And now from Hebrews 10, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And to the reading of God's word, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have a very interesting sermon today. Sermon title. I'm uh, speaking on the topic that I want all of you to listen to very carefully. It's this. God chooses to forget. God chooses to forget. Um, I'd like you first to forgive my uh, pretended irreverence, but how in the world can the writer of 1 Kings say that David was wholly true to the Lord? Have you ever read your Bible about David? Let me spread a little gossip about David. Is it okay if I spread some public gossip about David? How can the Holy Spirit, who of course was the primary author of the word, How can he say that David kept God's statutes and commandments? David was a blatant adulterer. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then, to compound matters, you know what David did? David conspired to murder one of the soldiers in his own army, who just happened to be the husband of Bathsheba, his name was Uriah, to cover up his adultery. So if we just read the account of David's life in Samuel, if we just read that, we could never say David was wholly true to the Lord. David kept all God's statutes and commandments. So wait a minute. We know God doesn't lie. God can't lie, Titus tells us. Satan is a liar. Satan is the father of lies. Let's say a little parenthesis. Remember that. Remember that. Just because an idea comes into your head doesn't mean it's the truth. You understand that? Satan loves to lie, and his demons love to lie. You can't have victory over sin. You can't quit doing that. You're so bound up with that, you can't quit. Everything's going to be really bad. Well, this idea came into my mind, and so it has to be true. No, there are all sorts of ideas that come into your mind that are not true. Many of them are inspired by Satan, satanically inspired. Satan's a liar. God's the truth. If there's truth anywhere, 
there's truth in the triune God. When we hold on to the triune God, we're holding on to the truth. Now having said that, his word, the Bible, is the truth. John 17, 17 says that. Jesus said that. He said that God's word is truth. This word, this written word, is truth. So if you disagree with that, you're disagreeing with Jesus Christ. Would you like to disagree with Jesus? No. God wrote the Bible. And since God can't lie, the Bible can't lie. So however we explain these statements in 1 Kings about David, we can't say God's lying. We can't say God doesn't really know what's going on. What is God trying to say in 1 Kings then? Why does he make these statements that seem to contradict what we know about David's life? He's talking to Solomon, who had committed tragic sin, (coughs) who had become an idolater. God said, you haven't acted like David your father, who wholly followed me, who kept all my statutes and commandments. I'd like to make a suggestion. I'd like to suggest that God chooses to forget. The Bible teaches this. We read there in Hebrews that as a result of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, God doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't remember our lawless deeds anymore. Now, immediately I have to say, that doesn't mean that God is sort of not constitutionally aware of them. That doesn't mean that he can't know them. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows all things, and he certainly knows, constitutionally, all our sins. But because he's God, and because he's sovereign, he can choose to forget. Now, uh, we sometimes speak of repressed memories, don't we? There's been a tragic, a traumatic event in our life, or in somebody else's life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have suffered that. Maybe it was war, some people. They've been captured in battle and been in a POW camp. Maybe it was a death in the family. Maybe it was a very painful illness that they got. Maybe it was a dear friend who turned on us. It's so painful. These memories are so painful that we choose to forget. It's not that we don't know about it. Of course we know about it. It's just we don't want to think about it. And so we choose to forget. We put it out of our mind. I think everybody here knows exactly what I'm talking about. Things from your past, things that are bad, and you choose to forget. Sometimes this isn't even a a conscious choice. There's some event that's so traumatic, we unconsciously put it out of our mind. This often happens to individuals that in wartime, they see the great horrors of war. And they honestly can't remember. They can't remember. They can't repress memories. But sometimes we actually choose to forget. We make a conscious, determined choice to put something out of our mind. And when it enters our mind, we push it to the edge of our mind. We choose to forget. Now, I'm going to say this morning that God chooses to forget in in an absolute way that we can't even understand. Our sins are right before our face, aren't they? Uh, David said in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Anybody here who's sinned and you've sinned grievously, I think you probably know what I'm talking about, don't you? Things are right in front of your face. Oh, how could I have hurt that person? How could I have done that to my body? That's just a terrible thing. And you're so ashamed. You wouldn't want to tell anybody else in the world, not your closest friend, I've done this. That's a terrible thing. And your sins are right there in front of you. 
And it's hard to forget them. And they just keep coming back to your mind. Therefore, because we can't forget, we tend to think by analogy that God can't forget them either. I mean, after all, God's omniscient. God's all-knowing. We're not omniscient, yet we can remember our sins, and we're not even all-knowing. Obviously, God remembers our sins. How couldn't it? God knows everything. But uh, we seem to forget something. God isn't only all-knowing. He's also omnipotent. What does that expression, omnipotent, mean? So he's not only all-knowing, he's also all-powerful. Now, think about this for a minute. God, therefore, remembers a lot better than we do. But he also forgets a lot better than we do. Everybody hanging on to that point? Everybody understand that? He forgets a lot better than we do. When we repent of our sins, when we confess our sins, we put away our sins, and God puts them out of mind. In Psalm 51, David prays that God will hide his face from David's sin. So he doesn't see it. It's as though God's doing this. I don't see it anymore. I don't see it. That's what God does. We confess our sins, that he forgives our sins, and he chooses to forget. God isn't a grudge holder. God forgives, and he really does forget. Now perhaps we can understand why God told Solomon that David followed him entirely. Now you understand why God could say that David obeyed God's statutes and commandments. Do you understand now why God could say that and say it truthfully? God erased all of David's sins and all he had left to see was David's faithfulness. All he had left to see was David's obedience. God couldn't see anything but David's heartfelt worship and his obedience. Now how else can we explain? How else can we explain Hebrews chapter 11? Have you ever read Hebrews chapter 11 before? It's a list of many saints in the Old Testament filled with the names of Old Testament saints. And God is holding these Old Testament saints up as examples to, to wavering saints in the New Testament. Oh, by the way, that shows that the quality of faith in the Old Testament was not one bit inferior to the quality of faith in our New Testament times. You understand that? Some people have the idea that in the Old Testament, well, yeah, you could be a follower of Jehovah, but you couldn't really be a zealous follower. Because Jesus has come today, we can, we can follow the Lord better than they did. Well, there's a big problem with that. <laughs> because of the examples that are given in Hebrews 11, these examples are held up, these Old Testament examples are held up to us in the New Testament era. But we find it hard to understand how some of the names at all got on that list. Take, for example, Abraham. Abraham is listed as a great example of faith. I got some more gossip on Abraham. He lied about Sarah, his wife, to one of the pagan kings. He didn't trust that God would protect her and him. Worse yet, worse than that, he, uh, he had intercourse with his wife's servant in order to get the promised seed. God had promised him a seed, and he and Sarah were getting old. Oh, well, I know I need to have this seed. And Sarah came to Abraham and said, I've got a way to get a child. I can't give you one, but my handmaid can. <clears throat> That's how, by the way, a son was born. Not Isaac, but, you know, Isaac's half-brother, Ishmael. 
He's the father of many modern Arabs. How could Abraham be a man of great faith? Come on. He didn't trust God to give him and his wife the promise. See, he tried to produce it in a way that God didn't design. Now, it seems to me, unless I'm half insane, and I don't think that I am, I don't think, that this is an example of unbelief. Unbelief, not faith. But, but when we read Hebrews 11, when we read Hebrews 11, we see that God chooses to forget. You ever read about Abraham's unbelief in Hebrews 11? Have you ever read through Hebrews 11 and seen, now that Abraham, yeah, sometimes he was pretty good, but you know, basically, he, when the great test came, one of the great tests, he really failed. Did you read that in Hebrews 11? No. God chose to forget. What about you and me? What about all the times we doubted God? What about all the times that we panicked? What about all the times we didn't pray? Instead of praying, we worried. What about all the bad choices we made, like Abraham did? You know, looking back over my own life in the last 30 years, I was thinking about this a couple years ago. I regret to say almost every bad choice that I made is because I panicked and I didn't trust God. That's a lack of faith. It's a sin. I've confessed that sin. I hope I don't persist in it. Maybe you're also like me in your own way. You face big health problems. You have heart issues in your family. There's too much month left at the end of the money. And you don't calmly and simply lay all of this out before God. And therefore you act rashly. You act in unbelief. You get up, I'm not going to take this. I'm gonna, I know what I'm going to do. Well, the good news is if you confess your sin to God, God won't remember it. He won't remember. God will choose to forget. Abraham, what about Sarah? Oh, man. She's also mentioned in Hebrews 11. She's mentioned as a great woman of faith, Sarah. Really? Really? One time, God sent angels to Abraham, and they were coming to Abraham to verify God's covenant promise about giving him a seed. God was going to give Abraham and Sarah, you know, a child in their old age, as I said before. And Sarah heard the angels <coughs> talking in the tent. They didn't have like we do <coughs> walls generally, at least in many cases they didn't. But they had like a little separator in a tent, like a tent door separating them. So Sarah could kind of hear Abraham talking to the angels and she heard them making these promises. And the Bible says, amazing expression, she laughed within herself. Sort of like, not, not this, <laughs> not that, but. You know, like when we roll our eyes. You know the adage, behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. So it's almost as though she's like, yeah, right. Sort of like that. And then later, God confronts Abraham, and she's there, and God said, well, Sarah, by the way, you laughed. He said, she lied. She said, no, I didn't. And I love that expression. <laughs> In some of the older translations even say it more beautifully. That in the old English language, I love the expression, it's, nay, but thou didst laugh. <laughs> nay, but thou didst laugh. So here's Sarah laughing at God's promises and then lying about it. And this is the same Sarah in Hebrews 11 that God says is a great woman of faith. Amazing. 
It says in verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Considered him faithful? She didn't consider him faithful. But you know the most wonderful thing is that Sarah repented. She put away her sin. And God chose to forget. And so what about us? Do we mock the promises of God in our own heart? I think like Sarah, we don't laugh out loud. We would never do that. No, we don't really believe God. Who believes God anyway? We would never say that. But not outwardly, but we read in the word that the Father glorifies Jesus by answering prayer. But we don't believe this. Like Sarah, we often laugh in our hearts. We somehow believe that God can't or won't heal illnesses. He can't or won't save sinners. He can't or won't bring wayward children back to the faith. He can't or won't supply our financial need. He can't or won't send up a great revival. According to Hebrews 3.12, that is an evil heart of unbelief. Do you and I have an evil heart of unbelief? Believing that God can't make radical changes, amazing changes. <clears throat> I was talking to a friend a few months ago on the phone. He's in the East Coast. He was visiting a Presbyterian church, and at their prayer time, they were praying for a woman in their midst, one of their members that got cancer. <clears throat> and they were praying, she had decided to get radiation treatment, and they were praying that the radiation treatment would not be too painful. And immediately something, not immediately, but after a while something struck him as odd. What do you think struck him as odd? They were praying that this would not be too painful. This radiation would not be too painful. And then he thought about the greatness of God and he asked, why aren't they praying? What? Why don't they pray God heals her? You say, well, it's not God's will for God to heal everybody. That's true. But he's much more likely to heal people if we have great faith in him and pray than if we don't. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive and God will choose to forget. Would you like one more? I'm going to mention one more name on that list. Final word of gossip today. Samson. Hebrews 11 talks about Samson, the great example of faith. Samson? Samson? Really? You're going with that? You're going with that, right? The self-centered judge, the undisciplined judge, the judge that put his own appetite above everything and everybody else. The judge who lost his massive strength, lost his eyesight because of his sin. You're going with that, writers of Hebrews? How could he be a great example of faith? Because at the end of his life, when he had suffered greatly because of his sin, he turned back to God. God used him to destroy more Philistines in his death than in his life. And God chose to forget his sin. And God said nothing about it. Nothing about it in Hebrews 11 other than he was a great man of faith. Some of us have acted like Samson, haven't we, in our past? We've let lust overcome us. Perhaps alcohol, drug, pornography, addictions. Our undisciplined tongue has hurt people pretty badly. We've played fast and loose with God's law. And Satan tells us we can't take it back, we can't make it back. We might as well continue in the slew of despond. Ever hear of that before? The satanic lie. If we repent, if we confess, if we put away our sins, God will choose to forget you 
and me. He'll choose to forget. Nobody reading about Samson in the Old Testament account would consider him a great man of faith. But that's because God interprets people's lives differently than we do. You know, sometimes we're much more lenient than God. That's dangerous. We don't take God's law seriously. Sometimes we're much more severe than God. That also is dangerous. And God just keeps on forgetting. Paul teaches that when we trust in Jesus, we get a new Lord. Sin no longer is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. But that doesn't mean that we reach some sort of sinless perfection. I was talking this past week with a a dear friend. We were talking about what Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 say. And there we read that we should put aside the the sin that easily weighs us down. And there's a picture that's used in, in Hebrews chapter 12. It's as though there are these huge heavenly grandstands and those that have gone before us, like those in Hebrews 11, are looking down on us. They've run their race already and we're running our race. We're running in our meat. And it's an interesting metaphor. I was here with one of my dear friends. He was running a track meet recently, and I was kind of thinking about this. What if you're running at a track meet, and you're required to take six- and seven-pound rocks and stick them in your pocket? I'm going to, like, double... And nobody else is required to do that. I'm going to, like, double-dog guarantee you are not going to win. You ain't going to do it. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, these, as we're running this race, we have these specific sins. Maybe it's sins of the mind, or sins of the body, or sins of the tongue. Unbelief, lust, worry, lack of affection. This one sin that just keeps coming back, he says, you can lay it aside. It's a weight that you can lay aside. I find it fascinating, this comes right after Hebrews 11. Did you notice that? All of these great witnesses from the Old Testament are looking down. But we, and this is really critical. <coughs> we never should get the impression that although we are weighed down by sin, they weren't weighed down by sin, and that's why they're such good examples. That's not what Hebrews is saying. The Bible tells us that these guys and gals in the Old Testament are good examples for us precisely because they're like we are. Precisely. And so they had sins that weighed them down. But God, by his grace, little by little, was able to get rid of those sins and throw those weights out, and they were able to run faithfully. And God chose to forget their sin, just as he forgets ours. You say, Andrew, does this mean that God uh, forgives the sin and forgets about the sin of those who refuse to repent? No. You read the scriptures, and I've been reading carefully, and particularly Jeremiah and Hosea. God says this. It's really amazing. God says of those who refuse to repent, I will remember. They keep going on and on and on and on in their sin. They think they'll get away with it. They hide their sin. But God says, I will remember. Trust me, God has a very good memory. Those who turn their back on God. Those who turn their back on the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Those who long for their sin. Who long to get God out of their lives. Yes, God will remember their sin. And judge their sin. But that's not true of his people. That's not true of his people. It isn't true of those who live lives of repentant obedience. He chooses to forget. In conclusion, I'd like to give everyone here an action item. 
a transformational action item. You ready? So this is your homework. This is your homework for this week. Are you ready? Everybody got it? Our growth as a Christian should be marked by our increasing tendency to view things the way that God sees them. I want you to think about that. You know, we're not just, when we're sinners, we're not just sinners in our bodies. We're not just sinners with our tongues. We're also sinners fundamentally in how we look at things. We look at things in the wrong way. And that's the problem when sinners stand up and you tell them something and say, well, I don't see it that way. And basically, we should say in a nice way, well, who cares? See, the important thing is seeing things God's way. And that's why as you read the Word of God and study the Word of God and pray and you're in God's house and fellowship with the people of God, little by little, you start seeing things God's way. Now, it may not win you a lot of friends on Facebook, certainly among unbelievers, or even backsliding Christians. But when you see things God's way, that's a mark of God's sanctifying work in your life. We might even say, if I could put it this way, and I want to say it reverently, that God has a worldview. It's the only totally correct worldview. And as we read the word of God, as we think God's thoughts, we more and more think as God thinks. You see, it's not just that God wants us to act as he wants us to act. He also wants us to think as he thinks. In fact, we won't be able to act as he wants us to act if we're not thinking the right thoughts. And if God chooses to forget our sin, we must choose to forget our sin also. When we confess and forsake our sin, God chooses to forget it. We have to choose to forget it too. When you and I keep remembering our sin, we're remembering what God has forgotten. And it's almost as though if we go in prayer, you know, God, you remember that sin. It was a long, long time ago, and I keep thinking about it, and it was terrible. And God says, no, what are you talking about? Well, you remember, God, I thought this, and I said something, and I did something to someone, and it keeps coming up, and it's a terrible thing. You remember, and God says, I've chosen to forget. No, I don't remember. Chosen to remember. Chosen to forget. Chosen not to remember. If we keep remembering, we're filled with guilt and we're filled with despair and overcome with anxiety, with no hope for the future, because that's what sin does. Sin robs people of their joy and their hope. It destroys things. It destroys our entire worldview. But know this, as it relates to sin, confessed sin, God is the master of the, let's call it this, the forgetfulness worldview. You can't imagine the life of freedom and joy and hope that you'll have if you start looking at confessed sin the way that God does. God chooses to forget our sin. So should we. Let's bow our heads. I would like for... If he doesn't mind, Byron Gravel.